Welcome to We Are Chafee Looking Upstream, a conversational podcast of humanness, community, and well-being based in Chafee County, Colorado. I'm Adam Williams. Today I'm talking with artist Brinkley Messick. I've wanted to learn more of Brinkley's story for quite a while, actually since before this podcast even existed. That's one of the things I love about podcasting. It's a fantastic excuse for me to reach out to people and ask them to have an hour-long conversation of depth and meaning right out of the gate, pretty much as strangers. And thankfully, Brinkley said yes to taking this ride with me. Though I've since learned that talking about himself isn't really his go-to move, so I feel extra honored to have this conversation with him. It's a good one, with plenty of breathing room for thoughtful answers. Brinkley dropped out of art school, yet here he is, one of this area's most recognizable artists with work that is known up and down the Arkansas River Valley and beyond. But if you don't know his work yet, I've included the link to his website in this episode's show notes at wearechafee.org. Brinkley describes himself as naturally subversive. We talk about how that and his study of anthropology have influenced his work as an artist. We learn about his upbringing and early influences in life and why Brinkley loves music but feels like he hasn't really been able to grasp the tools of making music for himself. He's got a love of horses and mountains and trails, so I ask him to share some of those stories. He and I have some common ground, like that love of the outdoors, and as artists, and as fathers, who each have two kids and are somewhat stay-at-home dads, who prioritize presence in our kids' lives. So we share some thoughts with each other on the experience of fatherhood, and, well, we talk about a lot of things. We Are Chafee Looking Upstream is a collaboration with the Chafee County Department of Public Health and the Chafee Housing Authority, and it's supported by the Colorado Public Health and Environment Office of Health Disparities. Now, here we go. Brinkley Messick. Brinkley, I'm glad we're getting to talk. You know, I've been looking forward to this for a while, and then I finally reached out, and so I really appreciate your saying yes and showing up today. Uh, thanks, man. I'm uh, a little nervous to talk, but uh, happy to be here. Well, if it helps you at all, so am I, because it's been a few weeks since I've talked with anyone else. So uh, we'll find our way together, though. We can't do this wrong. I tell everybody that every time. We can't do this wrong. It's just an hour of conversation, and um, you know we did that before over coffee, and it always goes so easily yep. when there's not a microphone. Look, I want to, and maybe this will help too. I want to tell you, I admire you. From afar, I have been able to observe a few things that, to me, are pretty cool. And I know that we don't know each other too well yet. I hope to get to learn a whole lot more about you just in this hour. But there's three areas from afar that I have noticed that I really respect and appreciate, and that's your artwork. It's your wherewithal and skill set, as it looks to me, with the wilderness. And then also, I know that you're a dad like me who's pretty involved with our two kids. Does it bother you that I just, did it make you more nervous that I started off with praise? <laughs> <laughs> um, oh man, thank you. I, I, I appreciate the praise. I, uh, I, I do, I'm, I'm kind of naturally self-conscious about talking about myself, I guess, you know, and maybe even tell with just eye contact there, but, um, um, yeah, those are all three things that I love, so it should be easy to talk about. <laughs> well, and there is no wrong answer yeah. on this stuff, right? Because that's what I try to do is get to the heart of this story, which you know better than anybody. 
is there anything I'm leaving out? Is there any fourth or fifth area of, wow, this is my, my focus or what I'm worried about or what I'm excited about in my life right now that I have missed? I don't think so. I think there's probably some subcategories in there that'll come out, but there's, sure. if I had to divide, you know, my priorities into three things, those would be, be probably the three main. Well, that makes me feel good <laughs> that I'm, I'm tracking. So, I'm going to do something I've never done in one of these conversations before, and that is kind of present a choose-your-adventure kind of moment here. Having named these three categories, these three really interesting areas of who you are, you can choose. What's what's most on your mind out of those three right now? And and maybe that was this morning you woke up thinking about it or excited about it, or where do you want us to go to start? Um, let's start maybe with art, probably. Okay, what do you have going on with art? I've got a lot going on. Um, I've got a couple shows in, currently in Denver. Um, I've got one up here locally at Elevation. Um, but just kind of ramping up for visitor season and summer and, and getting stuff um, out in the world. It's just going 100 miles an hour and then combine um, at least the – one of the other two categories with the kids and family. It's getting outside and spending time yeah. with the kids. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in full production mode right now with art and, um, I, uh, I like it. <laughs> like I like being really busy with it and it kind of feels like, you know, like art school cramming, um, a little nostalgic, like staying up late that kind of thing. So that's I'm I'm in the thick of it right now. So you went to art school? I I I started at art school. Um, I went to school at Appalachian State in North Carolina, and I had a kind of a existential freak out um, after my junior year about graduating with a a degree that didn't really easily translate to dollars and a paycheck, and dropped out of art school. Um, and ironically kind of switched to anthropology, <laughs> not a lot of money in that racket, right. but, um, um, yeah, but I, I, I do, I do miss parts of art school for sure. Did you have any influence to pursue art and go to school or maybe did anybody, whether that was family or friends, were they contributing to that freak out where they're trying to tell you this isn't sensible, you can't choose this do something more logical no it, it, it maybe it was some friends it was definitely what it wasn't family at all um you had support from family yeah i mean that was my my uh the, the thing that made me the most nervous and the hardest part about it i remember was actually telling my mom that i was going to drop out and it would take me a you know a an extra year of college to do a, a victory lap to, to finish out. Um, but yeah, that, that was, that was there. Both my parents are artists. Um, okay. And, uh, that was the, the hardest part, but also the most supportive. I mean, my, got me to actually take the step and, and change majors. Uh, but when I broke the news to my mom, she, she said, you don't need a degree to be an artist. And, um, that was kind of what gave me 
uh, enough confidence to, to take that step and do something else. And, and there was a lot of, I, I was able to combine the two and, and the studying anthropology and the stuff I picked up there has greatly contributed to art. Um, How so? Observation a lot. Um, you know, just be, being able to interpret things different or kind of get out of your own head. Um, and in anthropology, you can either be, you know, an observer or participant observer. I really like being a participant observer and, and being part of the experience to understand the experience type thing and, and really helps helped me um, – being able to to get out of your own head to interpret things, um, and also um, helps me, uh, I think, be more effective at conveying um, an an idea in work that other people would understand or more people would understand um, more effectively. Like when you, with an anthropology degree, if you put it on job resume things are out there uh you you get a lot of uh like ad agency stuff like people like wanting to reach the most amount of people how to most effectively advertise your product um and and i think i took that with art and you know how, how can i make my art most relatable to the most amount of people or certain certain people or whatever yeah your art certainly has that appeal um, I think lots of people love the work that you do up and down the Arkansas Valley and beyond. I can't really go anywhere in this area without running across a hat like you're wearing with some of your work or some uh, work that's hanging on a wall in a business or wherever. It seems like at this point, for anybody who's not familiar with what your work is, maybe it would be best if you describe what what it is, um, whether that's visually, aesthetically, anything else you want to about it, so we can bring along listeners who aren't yet aware of what it is you do. Yeah, I'll do my best. I think I'm I'm one of the types of artists that does the work, so I don't have to talk about it. But I'll um, there's a lot of us. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, the most current rendition of, of my work that I think most people are the most familiar with are um, the things that are kind of more landscape uh, based, which took me a long time to get there or get here. Uh, and I avoided it intentionally for a long time, but also uh, somewhat ironically, that's now what I'm known for and do the most with. Um, I, um, the, the natural world and experiencing the natural world through, um, outdoor recreation is, has been my thing and passion, um, for a long time. It's why I went to school where I did, why I ended up here. Um, and I, like I, I mentioned, I uh, avoided the landscape stuff intentionally for a while. And I, I don't, I, I think I'll use the term sellout, although I don't fully agree with it. Um, but I think that's what I thought it was. Like there's, it seems like there, it's easier to sell, um, landscape or, or just pretty stuff rather than things that really try to make you think and 
Um, and that's kind of the work I, I was doing and wasn't doing, wasn't doing landscape stuff at all, but I was surrounded by all this natural beauty and my, um, up until last year, one of my careers was in conservation and, and trails. Uh, so I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a trail builder in the nonprofit sector and surrounded, like staring at maps all day, uh, surrounded by mountains. I'm, I'm in an area surrounded by mountains, but it seemed just had this moment like this is stupid to try to keep avoiding <laughs> painting this stuff um when it speaks so much to you yeah that it's how how can i bring that in but i think if i'm hearing what you're saying in terms of the sellout idea was it to give if i work toward what is so marketable that that's the sellout versus i don't know what you were doing before this because i only know of what you're known for now, was it abstract? Was it conceptual? What was your art before that you enjoyed? But yeah, it's it's harder to find that audience for. Yeah, it it's hard to to really nail it down with or, or describe it um, kind of w- without referencing f- photos or, or actual work itself. But I I um, I mean it's kind of pop art ish. Um, I, I, I use a lot of text. I still like to use text. Um, but, um, it was, I mean, it's kind of pop art, post pop type of stuff. Um, my biggest and really graphically centered, like I, my, my biggest influences then were definitely like skateboard graphics, t-shirts, punk rock posters, um, that kind of thing. So like, Probably if it, maybe gig poster if that was a okay a, a uh, probably the best way to describe it. Um, and I'm back kind of way up when I first moved to Salida, um, I had a really hard time getting anybody here to even look at my stuff. And there was and I think that's where my kind of animosity and the sellout type thing towards landscape stuff really kind of started to solidify is because that there we have there's some amazing landscape painters here i mean and and incredible i'm not not dissing them at all the 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 talent and the work they produce is is unreal but um it made it hard for somebody that doesn't do that to get taken seriously um like places galleries um most of them like like i said i mean they wouldn't even look at my cd of my work there's another i'm yeah, dating yeah, yeah. myself there <laughs> um, but so that i think that i mean and i'm kind of naturally subversive and that really fed into that i'm like i mean i I think for a uh, a group show here i i just had this old rusty piece of metal and then white paint i wrote landscape but the s was a cash symbol um, just, that was my, you know, um, that's the subversive kind of angry part coming out, but I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I put it off. Cause I think when I started, I had a lot of time to think about how I wanted to do it and time to practice. And also, um, like I said, I, I was in the field with trails and, and doing my recreation so much, 
I always had a sketchbook. So my line work comes from sketching that type of stuff. So though I wasn't doing that, the, the landscape work, um, to, to sell or, or showing in public, it was always in my sketches. Okay. Well, and I think something that stands out to me is if we're, you're using the word landscape, and I'm sure that that evokes a certain image in people's mind that might refer more to some of these other painters. I can't do what they do the way they do it either. So something that appeals to me is how you have found your own approach to what this work is with the mountains and the rivers and the topographical lines and, the, and all of that line work that you do. And you're doing a lot of it on, is it reclaimed wood? Yeah. Um, it's all um, all reclaimed, salvaged stuff. Okay. So you, you have found your own way with it. Yeah. Which... Um, I think is pretty pretty remarkable. It has become what you're known for, and you you were talking about production earlier. Is is there an element of you that now that you have made this leap and you have gone full time, right, in the last year or two? Yep. Um, I want to talk about that. I want to learn about how you came to that decision and those things. But I've talked with a number of artists who, when they do, when they, I, I don't want to use the word sellout, and certainly not to describe what you're doing. But when they make that step to say, this is what is saleable, this is what I can make a living from, they, what they find sometimes is, I'm stuck in production work. This is all people want from me. Have you felt like that at all? Do you feel like you still have time and energy to maybe explore some of the other creative areas you want? Or are you totally in love with what you're doing and it's all good all the time, dream come true, I'm doing it full time? I right now I, I just this tax season was my first year of just doing art, um, and I'm not comfortable enough to I think kind of I I need to do things that I'm pretty sure will sell right now. I'm not comfortable enough to to really kind of explore again. Although I I want to, um, and I I'm trying to build in parts of my week where, you know, I have one day a week where I do something. I don't care if it sells or not. Um, I'm not quite there. I'm, I need to get a little bit more comfortable. Um, maybe this next year, year two, uh, we'll, we'll get there, but it's, I mean, it's a balance. I love the stuff that I'm doing. I don't feel like I'm doing it just to sell it. I feel like I found a balance. I think I'm really lucky to have done that. Um, but there's, there's, there's weeks where I do S mountain 10 times <laughs> and, uh, um, I, I like it. I, I, I don't, I don't hate it, but it, it, you know, it, it gets a little old. I can maybe do it with my eyes closed sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> what were your parents focused on with art? You said they both were artists. What kind of work were they doing? Um, both were multi multidisciplinary. My, uh, my parents split when I was really young, um, but my, my mom actually went into labor at a crafts fair. They were, um, they were, like I said, multidisciplinary. At, at the time, my, my dad was doing stained glass and um, my mom was doing um, handmade dolls. Um, so a lot of kind of folk art um, things. Uh, my dad also taught design um, at... NC State University and Cornell and had a academic side to his work. 
um, and, and a lot of like theater production stuff. So kind of all over the place. He was a stained glass craftsman. Um, my, from what I remember, like my whole life, um, my mom's a graphic designer, uh, professionally, but she's, she's currently an art, a, a fiber artist. She does this incredible detailed, um, hand dyed, hand stitched work. Um, but they, it was, despite all of that, it was never really forced on me. Like we went to a lot of museums and, and things. And, um, I, a lot of the time I spent with my dad was at craft fairs that he was working, but it wasn't, I didn't, I don't remember feeling pressure to do it. Um, I loved doing it. It was always there. I was always had materials and things available to me, but it was, it was, it was supportive, but not, you know, forced. You grew up in North Carolina, yep. right? So were your parents both around at that point, like throughout, you know, after they divorced, were they both accessible to you where you were spending lots of time equally with them or? No, my, my mom raised me. Uh, my, my, dad always lived in other towns um and it was a um holidays and a couple weekends a year um type thing it, it was um kind of a i was only only child and single parent okay i'm curious about the influences um toward art and of course your parents pr- providing just as as an environment without trying to push you toward that, um, is amazing to me. I feel like I grew up in such a structured, rules-based home that it's taken me decades to figure out with my creative work how to find my own voice. Is that something that you feel like they encouraged you to unlock your own approach to these things versus here are the rules, this is how you do this, or this is how you do that, you know, all that structure, was there encouragement to be subversive as an artist, which of course is a key piece of, of art historically? Oh, I don't think it was really either of those. It was just, here's what you can do and here are things that other people have done. And definitely wasn't the, all the, the subversive stuff. Um, I think is more of, um, some of the other routes that I decided to go that also encourage, um, the, the those kinds of thoughts, feelings, and actions like punk rock music and skating and stuff like that, uh, kind of subculture things. Um, but it really it was it, anything I did. Um, it was just talked about with positive encouragement, and and I, I even I didn't take any art like uh visual art classes in in middle school at all i did another elective um for for some reason so there's kind of a period growing up where it wasn't there at all um i I do remember you know kind of being known in my class and stuff for for art in elementary school and then again in 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 high school um but it was it it kind of a rough period i think in um, in art and education, like our, we did, my mom actually came and she was our, our art teacher for a couple of years in elementary school. Cause there wasn't any other options. Like they went from a, you know, a classroom to a cart to nothing at all. Um, and parents stepped in and, and started 
doing it just so the kids would have some, th- some kind of visual art element. What do you mean by a cart? Um, like a pushing a cart around from class to class. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, what, that, what size was your school? Oh, man, I don't know. It wasn't huge. My, I, um, town I grew in, grew up in is fairly small. Um, I don't, I couldn't even tell you the exact number of my graduating class, probably in the three, like 200 to 300 possibly. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's much larger than I had. Um, yeah. And then we have around here, I think. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it, it was, it was 2A, whatever that is. I don't know if that translates from state to state. Yeah. I, I think they're their own thing. Uh, and that, I mean, I, I, I. I might even. I mean, that might have been our entire school. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to visualize our class picture and count heads. And, um, you say two A. I think of that with sports classifications. That's, did you play sports? I did. Um, soccer is what I. I played everything growing up at a younger age, but soccer is what kind of took over. Um, through um, through middle school, high school. You've mentioned punk music a couple times. Were you into music? Did you play things? I can't play anything. I want to so bad. Like, I what <laughs> music's so important. And every time I've tried, it doesn't work. Um, so I've, I've decided I focus energy elsewhere. Um, what have you tried? Um, I, uh, most seriously, and what I put the most effort in was banjo. Um, there's a real specific, uh, style play from the southern appalachians that my other you know favorite genre is traditional bluegrass old time stuff um and there's a claw hammer style that i I tried so hard and um it's just not in the cards (laughs) are you familiar with nathaniel rayliff yeah and his music and i've listened to a podcast with him before and he's talking about that claw hammer style that he has and I, i think it was something that he just sort of happened into and doesn't even know how to get out of it's, Oh, really? <laughs> it wasn't something he tried to achieve. And I actually didn't realize until you just said it, that it was something that you could actively try to learn. Like I had only ever heard of it when Rateliff was talking about it. Mm-hmm. And I thought he was just sort of describing what, <laughs> for lack of a better way of my saying, it was more of a mangled hand position. <laughs> it kind of is. Yeah. It's, <laughs> um, it, you're not, it's not really as you think of banjo as picking, you know, and a lot of finger work and claw hammer. It's, it's kind of more of a rhythmic, you know, hammer motion. Okay. Uh, but why, why didn't it work? Why do you think? I don't know. I don't know. Surely you could, if you wanted to focus energy there, but like you said, it's like you've decided, I mean, cause we only have so much energy Yeah. and there's other interests. I, so. I get really frustrated when I don't pick things up easily. Um, yeah. and that's something that, it's not easily for me. It wasn't easy for me to pick up. I feel the same way. And creativity is one of those things that I feel like I'm only in, in the last few years even learning to accept and embrace process versus outcome and immediate outcome. So you've had to go through that process. You you wouldn't have been, I mean, you're using the word landscape and I'm not going to try to change that on you. I feel like it's a little bit of a misnomer for how much I appreciate the work that you do, but it's, it's also accurate, of course. And you wouldn't have maybe come to that without a process of years of doing other artwork first. You know, there's somehow, whether we realize it or not, I think a subconscious, you know, process of collecting these ideas and styles and techniques. 
Um, I mean, how, how do you feel about that? What I'm saying in, in your, uh, I guess, ability to embrace process in that way. Yeah, I, I think it's it's like the the concept of there's no original thought. Like any any thought you have is has so many other influences to get yeah. you to that point. Um, and I that that's also something that kind of clicked with me with anthropology and like um, you know, but beliefs being cultural and. Um, you know, it takes an, an entire culture. Um, when I re- really fell in love, um, or had a really kind of an epiphany breakthrough moment with anthropology, there was um, a discussion of right and wrong is cultural. Um, and I did, I did a internship in a rural community in Honduras. Um, um, the um, other thing that I did for a long time, we haven't talked about is, uh, work with horses and we're going to get to it. So where we were in, in Honduras, um, it was per, the best way to get there was horseback. And I, I was, it was myself and two other students going to this community together. And one of the other students had had experience with horses. Um, but more of a, uh, uh, dressage and showing, um, and kind of just really quote unquote kind of pampered horses and things. And mine <laughs> was more of a utilitarian, use them for horse packing. And I uh, worked with draft horses on farms in North Carolina. And I, we're not intentionally cruel, um, or, or mean to them, but they're, it's a tool versus a pet kind of a, a right. mindset and this person immediately got on the wrong foot in this village um there's a you know her interpretation of of right and wrong really stepped in and um and totally affected her um experience because of the way that they treated their animals which again it was a little more harsh than we would do here for sure in the in the states but um i didn't think that they were being uh cruel to the animals or, or whatnot, but um, just that something as simple as right and wrong is totally cultural, um, and that that is developed by you know every element of the culture you're in. And I think of that with art. It's like I I got here with every I seriously doubt you'd see my work on um, a band poster that I was listening to in high school right now but it took those things the skateboards i had just thumbing through catalogs um that have nothing to do with my work now to to get to where i am with my work Um, yeah sure yeah it's um it's interesting to me how we collect you know these these sources of information and i think as a creative person just the natural process of that it's it's so inherent that i don't think we even realize where always the influences are coming from I love that you gave us a segue here to horses because I did want to talk with you about that. Um, but I want to start first with, uh, I was digging back through some posts that you have on Instagram. And I found one by Edward Abbey that I want to read real quick and then get your thoughts on. You posted Edward Abbey's line, may your trails be crooked, winding, lonesome, dangerous, leading to the most amazing view. 
May your mountains rise into and above the clouds. And I'm curious about what someone like Edward Abbey, the author who is renowned for um, his sometimes even anarchical views, um, but deep care for the environment, um, and what that quote may be in particular, since you chose that one and posted that one, what's the resonance there for you? Um, I, my favorite part of that one is your trails be crooked, um, both as a trail designer, um, nobody likes straight trails, you know, um, <laughs> but also that's the journey, right? Like, it, like this, um, you know, rough seas make skilled sailors or whatever that quote is, you know, it's like, I, I like the trails be crooked part of that quote kind of more than anything, um, I I like hard work and, th- and things that are tough, and um, that's what the crooked trails kind of in- invokes to me. Um, the with the the nonprofit side of uh, or the nonprofit sector part of trail building, which is what I involved was involved with the most, uh, was a lot with volunteers and youth corps, um, <clears throat> and. Um, Ed Abbey is just thrown around so much. I think that people come, especially on the youth core side, um, you know, maybe still in high school or taking a gap year or just out of college and are, are, are finding Ed Abbey and, and things. And we throw around these quotes, uh, but it's a little, I feel like a little oxymoronic in that you know, we're, we're building trails which is getting more people mm. into these natural places and it might not have been uh, his favorite. <laughs> yeah, it's a catch-22. When you want to introduce people so that then maybe more people form an attachment and a connection to nature, so then we take care of it. We care about it. But by doing that, right, there's more of our mark. Yeah, and and that's, you, you, you said it perfect. That's, and that's why I... I look at what I was doing with trails when a lot of people do with uh, both trail maintenance, but also trail development um, is it's a tool for conservation. And um, if I, um, I think a lot of people need to see um, different kinds of of value um, in, in a resource. And I think, you know, Trails allow access um, both to, to experience the, the natural world and but also our, our form of recreation, which around here, you know, a lot of folks are trail running and mountain biking and um, and things like that. And I think that, you know, the, that's the, the more people that are out there, the louder our collective voice is for conservation and, um, and defense, really. Right. So I've said horses. Mm-hmm. It happens to be we're going to, you know, the name Ed. Oh, yeah. (laughs) All right. So we said Edward Abbey. Well, there's also a horse named Ed that I found another story from you on that I think was what really showed me. When I said I admire your wherewithal and skills in wilderness, that was one that especially um, that story resonated with me is, wow, this guy's out here working with pack horses. He is in a compromised situation with this horse, Ed. And I'm going to ask you in a second to tell and share that story, if you will. 
But I'm just saying you are using clearly skills, trail building, working with horses and things that, that I don't have. And I feel like an awful lot of us, maybe for generations back now in our families, have lost touch with what it means to work with the land, work with animals, work with, um, you know, being outdoors and, and self-sufficient and things like that, that I sort of envision might, might be part of your story. Um, if you want to run with that, I guess, and share to what extent, if, if I, I don't want to mislabel you, if, if I'm being unfair or inaccurate, please correct me. But otherwise then, if you would share that story with Ed and, um, I've built it up now. Yeah. Have- <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well, I, um, I originally I came out to Colorado to work at a summer camp during summers in college, um, thinking I would do rock climbing and um, and climb fourteeners and backpack. And the, the camp had a horse packing element, and I immediately gravitated towards it, and it kind of took over. And I ended up working there and uh, as a wrangler and horse packer for years, and stayed on and did kind of ranch work and. Um, we had a cow calf operation as well, uh, so that that I I didn't I wasn't raised um, w- with horses. I did a little bit of riding and lessons growing up, but nothing, um, n- nothing major in, until until college and out here. And then um, did, I did that for a long time. And um, with with trail stuff, I I worked as a, a volunteer coordinator on the Rio Grande National Forest. Uh, just over the the pass, and um, I got to use my horsepacking skills to get volunteers out and get um, tools and stuff in, in wilderness. Uh, so wilderness areas, you're not not allowed to use mechanized equipment, so we can't take motorcycles or or anything up to get to get equipment. So sometimes we're having groups out for a week. Um, the, the story we'll, we'll get to, that group was actually out for months. They're out almost all summer. So okay. we're, we're taking lots of equipment and gear um, into the wilderness. Um, but so, the yeah, the uh, story of Ed, um, I was uh, packing a crew up um, the Kit Carson Basin in the Sangre de Cristo Wilderness and the the sangres um are really special to me um spent a lot of time working there um i i really i, I love the San Luis valley in, in in general i think um it reminds me a lot of of home um both being flat like eastern north carolina is really flat <laughs> uh the valley itself is really flat but just the kind of agrarian agricultural communities and um working together and i i just i just i, I love it over there um and, and the sangres themselves they're so steep and deep um there's places that don't get a lot of sun and it's 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 one of the only places i feel like in colorado you can smell things rotting and i, I miss hmm. it like i miss the appalachian <laughs> smell of like just that dense dank musky smell um and i've there's some places in the sangres that that i definitely you know it's whatever the smell is sensed closely tied to memory and for sure (laughs) it smells like home um but anyway i they're um they are like i said steep and deep 
And some of the, the trails, particularly the one I'm talking about, um, the Willow Lake Trail, there's sections of it that were, were blasted um, out of the, the bedrock. And uh, we had horses loaded up. Uh, we were on foot um, to, to pack in as much as possible. So the horses we would be riding, we actually had um, rigged up carrying gear. And um, this uh, horse, Ed, I, I only had two horses. So it was, um, I was leading, so it was me. Um, and I, um, I had a lead rope for one horse in my hand and then Ed was tied to that horse. Um, Ed is a, a, a Mustang. Uh, so he has a, a freeze brand on his neck and, um, I don't, I don't know exactly which herd he came from, but the freeze brand is kind of like a zip code. Um, okay. there's seven to nine characters on there. Um, in a row, and it really does kind of look like the the numbers on the bottom of a barcode, um, and it it tells kind of when he was born and where, um, what which herd he came off of, um, and um, when you tie two horses together, uh, you use a, a a breakaway, and it's a, a thin piece. Sometimes we just use baling twine, and it's strong enough to where. Um, the horse will lead and follow the horse in front and it won't break if they go down to eat or something. Um, but if stuff goes awry, which, um, is prone to do, um, it will do its job. And that is to, to break away. And we were on one of these sections that had been blasted out of bedrock. So the horses are on bedrock and, um, horses, uh, most of them have metal shoes um, when you're when you're doing work, and you know metal on bedrock can be pretty slick, um, and I just remember kind of hearing a sound. I turned around, and Ed's hindquarters slipped um, on this bedrock, and his 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 rear started to pull him backwards, um, and you could see his 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 front feet dig in as best they can his neck was fully extended um eyes were really wide and then the um, breakaway snapped so all everything he was doing to pull himself up the inertia or whatever went the other way he stood up on his back legs he was fully loaded we were going uphill still and all the weight in his pack um pulled pulled him backwards um off the cliff and, how much weight was he carrying do you suppose? Um, um less than 200 pounds um but it's dead weight so and you think of a rider you know i'm 200 pounds um but it's a lot easier for him to carry me than than 200 dead pound dead weight pounds okay um so that that weight you know just pulled him pulled him down and it i said cliff it was um you know if you've been in the sangres um there's cliffs that are a couple hundred feet tall this it wasn't one of those we were it was kind of staggered so he landed on the first um ledge uh which was kind of a kind of a kind of a funnel um but he landed upside down and he wasn't moving and he's about 20 20 feet below us at this point um, and we had to 
keep going. We couldn't really turn around with the animals we had. Um, so I had to leave him there for a second, um, get the other horses to a safe spot. And then um, I was able to get down to him. And he, it, at this point, he's still not moving a whole lot. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm panicked. I'm, I'm trying to stay cool and calm, but, um, he, he's also, he's, he's upside down, but it's, he's on a slope. So his head's down low. Um, and kind of the, the clock's kind of ticking. You want to get him up as fast as possible. Um, and he's also, um, wedged, um, in between a, a dead tree, uh, that was down and, and the rock wall. So just had everything was not, was, was against him at this point. No, nothing was going his way. And I just started, uh, took out my knife and just started cutting at ropes to trying to get this pack and saddle off of him. And it was kind of, um, I was being really careful. Like he's on his back, hooves, hooves hurt, especially with metal shoes. Um, and it was like the, the second I cut the, the last um, piece of the, the pack rope that freed him, he started flailing um, and, and trying his best. And I got hit a couple times. I got pinned in between the rock. Um, took, a, took a blow to the head that kind of – so you know, some it didn't put me out, but, you know, it was like, whoa, I better be careful type of a thing. A hoof to the head? Uh, I don't know. It, it was um, it, it was one of the like something hit my head pretty hard. I'm assuming it was a a, a hoof, mm. um, but I, I didn't I didn't see it or I or I forgot it <laughs> from the blow. But anyway, um, he he flailed around and then stopped and um, tried a bunch of things to get him up. Tried pulling on his head. Tried to flip him over. There wasn't a lot of option. Um, and I don't know the exact time, um, but he's been down long enough that we're kind of worried that he it might have some other stuff going on um, internally. It was definitely a big enough fall, um, especially since we can't see his back and he's just so awkward. There, I, I was thinking there might have been a, a spinal injury. Um, and we kind of made the decision to start the, the, the call for extra help and um, potentially a way to put him down if, if we needed to. Um, and the uh, person I was with was on the phone making that call. Luckily, we had service. And I um, decided to give it one more shot and tied some of the got some of the pieces of rope um that we had cut off and um tied him around his far legs and um i i didn't have a lot of room to to pull it was just so tight in there and um i kind of climbed up on the log that he was pinned in and jumped off the other side with the rope and that was enough to flip him over and he popped up like nothing happened <laughs> it was it was it was amazing um, what was that relief for you then to to have that sort of breakthrough moment that suddenly fixed what was previously feeling so so bad? Oh man, I cried. <laughs> I mean, it was it was it was emotional for sure. Um, 
Yeah. It, I mean, it, 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 you feel so responsible when you're working with animals, um, especially like you, I mean, we, he was put in that situation. Um, I, I, I don't know if there's anything I could have done to prevent it from, from happening. I don't think we were, we made bad decisions for being reckless in any way. I, but you still feel responsible. Sure. Um, especially when you've, you've already kind of come to grips that you might have to put the animal down. How many years ago was this? That would have been 2015, I think. Okay. The reason I ask that is because the post that you shared this story in was, I'll say a tribute. It was in relation to your receiving the news that Ed would die. And mm-hmm. of, of old age, presumably. I mean, he was an old horse. And so there's some years then between how you were feeling to want to share this news and share this story as a bonding experience between the two of you um, several years after this happened when, when he dies. Did you ever work with Ed again? Or how did that relationship or your sentiment for this experience end up carrying with you? Oh, uh, yeah, I, I definitely worked, I worked with Ed again. I didn't take him on that trail again. <laughs> we We approached things a little bit differently after that. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, you know, as much as we want, um, animals to be bonded to us a certain way, I don't think they are. I think, <laughs> I don't think he could care less about me. I, I certainly felt pretty, you know, I had strong feelings for him after that, just the experience we went to, but, um, I don't know. Uh, it mattered to you. It, it mattered. Yeah definitely mattered to me for sure um and uh i would even though I, I didn't work there anymore whenever they were pastured somewhere where we could drive by uh, we, we recreate and spend a lot of time down the san Luis valley but we would stop with the kids to see ed and the other horses and stuff and well does he recognize you does he come up and, and uh, act like he knows who you are well i i i would do the same things we do when we come to feed them so <laughs> <laughs> he thought I was food. But, okay. Well, I mean, okay. I, I, I I do think some horses can recognize individuals. I have, I've I've I have had bonds with with particular horses that um, felt more than just in my head. You know, I I I don't want to be too much of a pessimist about it. Like poo poo that relationship that people have with them too much. But I I think it's romanticized a lot. But I I I, I do I think it exists. I. I feel like I've experienced it some. Brinkley, I'm curious, too, about some stuff you did recently this past winter with, it looked like backcountry snowboarding. Um, I think you went to British Columbia. Was that with just a group of friends? Was that a work-oriented thing? Um, I couldn't quite tell. A little of both. I, um, it was, it was a, a, a group of friends. I um, almost always have some kind of art supplies with me on any any trip um but that one i i did bring a lot and i I even stayed back a day to just do art um kind of make it a work trip and um the actually two of the shows that i have right now in denver um are with the the folks that own those businesses were on the i met on the trip so okay definitely a work trip well there was a really cool video that you had posted um and I wondered how that came to be because it was done so well. And it seemed like someone, you know, they stayed back. There's you hiking up this mountain. That's, that's not me. 
Oh, it's not you hiking it. I'm the. Vi- I did all the video work on it, and I I just edited it to look like me. <laughs> that's me doing right. everything. <laughs> but no, that's awesome. <laughs> I love getting to know that. Okay, so that's but so you weren't the one who rode down. It was me riding down. There's one. There's two shots of somebody hiking up, and that's not me. But the re- oh, okay, you have a stunt double. How cool is that? But you also did the video work, and I thought that was done really well. So, one, I think you know I don't have backcountry skills. I think maybe I need to latch on to you to uh, have a friend to go do this with because that's another thing that I admire is some of these places you're getting into and the powder, and that's so amazing. And then also having your art uh, supplies with you, which is video shows. But then my question on this comes to, it looks to me like you're riding a sandboard like people use on the sand dunes. Your feet are not bound in. Yeah, that um, we did. I, it's called a, a pal surfer or a snow surfer, and it kind of goes back to the kind of the roots of snowboarding. Yeah, the, they the uh, they called it a snurfer or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, the snurfer was a, was I think came from Michigan, um, but like Burton snowboards, you know, they all started with binding with stand on top with pads. Some I had a, had a rope on the nose that you hung on to, but it's picked up again the last few years. Really? Okay. There's, um, there's like my, mine's a production model, like a, a big snowboard company's making them. Even Burton is is doing one, but also people are getting into like shaping them, like surfboards, like really messing with um, that. Like the mine underneath is not flat; like it it looks um, like a piece of bacon. It's so wavy, but like huh. they're really shaping them like surfboards. Well, I snowboard, but. I guess I'm not sure how you translate that to not having your feet bound in and be able to control the board, not slip off of it. Or if you do go down, how you keep the board from just heading on down the mountain. You've, you've got a leash, um, just like surfing Okay. on that. Um, so it's hooked to like your ankle or something? Uh, to usually to your backpack. Okay. Um, and, or, uh, a, a belt or something. Um, and it's, there's a little bit of a learning curve from snowboarding, but not a ton. Um, once you get a certain amount of speed, you're, you're stuck to the board pretty good. It's the first um, 50 feet or so that feel a little wobbly before you get fast enough to really stick to it. But you can carve, and, and there's, there's, there's some people doing pretty crazy freestyle tricks and stuff. And we, we don't have... Um, right around Salida, the a, a lot of um, opportunity to use them with snowpack, and um, it, it takes you need you need fresh snow um, at least six inches to really um, have have a good experience on them, and and certain types of of terrain. Oh, but they're really nice in, in high avalanche um, conditions because you don't need some super steep. Like you can go under thirty degrees and be pretty safe on um, on moderate avalanche days. I think having that avalanche safety training is is the thing that I'm I feel like is a key piece for me before I can get out there. But then also having people who know what the hell they're doing, so I can you know have some confidence with where I'm going. Yeah, um, is that training that you have? I I actually don't have a um, an, an avi cert. I've only um, I, I go out with people that know more than me, um, which 
also, I mean, they put, they put a lot of trust in me, <laughs> I guess, on that. But I also, I don't push the boundaries. I, I don't go into what's considered avalanche terrain. I mean, yeah. keep it yeah. less steep than. Yeah. Things can happen in anywhere, but I, I don't, I do pay attention. I read this, um, color avalanche information center reports, um, incident reports and, and, and everything, um, pretty co- consistently. Um, and, and I, I mean, I, I've, I've learned a lot of things, but I don't have a, a card in my, my wallet. I think what appeals to me about it is it's not about getting into certainly not the danger of, of where avalanches are into that level of steepness. It simply is being out in the wild, being away from things and hiking up, skinning up on split board, whatever is necessary, but just enjoying the overall effort and connection with nature. And if that means I only get one or two or whatever runs it is in a day because of that energy effort and it's just being out there, I think that's what appeals to me about it, what is it that that draws you into these kinds of experiences? Um, I guess in 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 winter wilderness, because um, clearly we've talked about summertime trail work. Uh, yeah, very, very much the same. It's it's another way to. It's an immersive experience. It's it's totally it's a great word. Yeah, it's it's totally different than riding a lift. Um, you, know, you you can be out with not that you know few of your friends or and and really not not see a lot of people although that i mean that that's changing a little bit especially i mean definitely with the pandemic but uh equipment's more accessible as it's it's cheaper um i mean it's split boarding it's been interesting to I, I didn't come in right in the right in the very very beginning of split boarding but i've gotten to see it um evolve quite a bit uh, where you, you, the only way to get one was to make your own. And there was but one or two companies really doing stuff. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm not an avid, avid split boarder. I, I enjoy, I like to get out a couple times a season, but I'm not a every, every week type of a person. Um, but I, I, I really do enjoy doing it when I can. And also to get back on, like, we have amazing huts and, and backcountry hut systems around here. And, and I've, 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 been snowboarding. I started snowboarding in North Carolina when I was 12 or 13, but I've never had skis on my feet. So mm. for me to, to get back to some of these places, it really took a split board or snowshoes. It's a lot of work. Yeah. Let's talk about kids and being a dad now, because it really does tie together so much of what we're talking about. Just like your parents were artists that influenced you. Surely the creativity that you have in the house that you Creating that environment affects them. But I also know that getting outdoors is a big piece of things with them, too. Describe yourself as a dad. Oof. I'll try. Um, I think my influences as a parent um, are equal parts positive role model from my mother. And my, my mom, I guess I, I mentioned earlier, she she raised me. Um, on her own, single mom the whole time. I've got so much to um, aspire to um, with the bar that she set, and I, I, it, it's it's so important to me um, that that I kind of live up to that. Um, and then the other part is 
I won't say a negative role model, but definitely things that um, I, you know, would do differently or and do differently, and that's from my dad's side. Like I, I didn't see my my dad that often. Um, I I don't remember any like too many like super negative experiences, but just absence is is kind of the biggest thing. My um, Certainly kind of my love of the outdoors and the natural world um, has a lot of his influence. Uh, my, my mom um, helped with that, but he was kind of the catalyst for that. I have a, I have a half-brother um, on my dad's side who is an old-growth um, old activist um, and conservationist, so um, hunted out stands of old-growth trees and um, kind, of, kind of a hermit. Um, in the Appalachians and I spent a lot of time with him and my dad um, younger than that when I was younger and that really you know fostered my love and respect for the natural world um, but just uh, my my mom was both parents like I, I think there's a difference between being a single parent and being both parents and somehow she did both roles mm. and um, that's 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 first and foremost. That's my biggest influence as a parent. Um, but then, my love of being a dad surprised me, and and um, I think surprised my mom and my my wife as well to some extent. Um, and then it was just 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 this immediate. You know, feel an overwhelming mix of love, responsibility. Um, just it's, I mean, it's for me, it's pretty impossible to, to describe accurately. Um, but I immediately took over, and that's what I that's what I am now. Like, I as as you know, as soon as my first first kid was born, um, and I, I think having a parent that was at, so absent really makes me want to be as present as possible and fortunate enough have been able to do that and kind of the career switch to doing just art gives me more time to be with them um, after school or during the pandemic when there's no school at all or in and, you know in our, our area child child care is hard for the young ones so I was able to to be there a lot when they were before we had child care um, but it's just experiencing things again for the first time or when they experience things for the first time it's i don't know the whole thing um yeah i remember you know it probably was before my first son was even born um and my kids are now 12 and 10 uh, what are your ages a uh, six and my son turns four in july so okay getting close but i do remember when my older boy um so at the time of course our only child was just a few weeks old. And I just remember this, I can even picture being with him and thinking how for somebody so young, um, you are clearly the most important person to me in the entire world. Uh, yeah. you know, all these positive things that, you know, that there's a depth to it. That's like, how can this be? And, and so, yeah, um, this is why I want to talk with you about fatherhood because we both, um, I think have a similar are, are at a similar place in life in terms of having, in terms of having created 
these lives that are built around flexibility, we both live creative lives, we both are artists, we um, are very present for our kids. And so when I see that you you share things um, on social media, you know, these videos of you going snowboarding with these young kids or, or whatever the activities are, it's, it's biking, it's, there's a lot of time out in nature. And I appreciate seeing that and that I get the, I get this chance to talk with someone who maybe shares um, a similar view of um, stepping back into, into, you know, from, you know, traditional roles. I mean, I, I feel, I don't know if you feel pressure on that, but it certainly is something that nags in the back of my head sometimes because of the way we're conditioned and socialized. My wife is the primary earner in the house and I'm the primary parent they go to. There's something happens at school. I'm the one with the flexibility to go talk, you know, um, your thoughts on that and, and where you are and what your focus is as, as dad in that role right now. Yeah. I, um, yeah, real s- similar boat as you with, with that stuff. I, my wife's the primary earner. Um, and I'm kind of the, 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 the more kind of stay at home parent and, and, point person with the kids and and it it felt so natural to me um to do that it, it never felt felt weird for me like i didn't feel like i'm going against societal norms or whatever i because I, I, I i'm not the only dad that i that i know that does that um here um i, I don't know if things are you know changing on a larger scale, um, where it, it hit me the first time is, um, I was real sensitive when my daughter was young, um, at, about real gender specific toys. And, um, my mom got my daughter a, uh, kitchen set and I got pretty, uh, I was aggravated with it. Um, but my wife was like, you're the one that cooks. She watches you cook. She's not doing what she thinks, you know, the mom's supposed to do or whatever. Um, right. So, so in in your mind, she she was being handed this traditional idea, but like your wife's pointing out, well, traditional in her mind is actually, you're the one cooking. Yeah. Yeah. So now I don't know what to do, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, I look at parenting, to me, the most essential thing, I think if I had to put it into one word, is teaching. And I feel like a lot of parenting that I have observed, and maybe it's from, I don't know if it's from, I mean, my parents, to some degree anyway, they were teachers, school teachers, yet didn't necessarily teach at home in the way that I view teaching as the most significant role for me with my kids now. Um it's all the life stuff and it can be the school stuff too. But I look at the teaching as, as most essential. So I maybe, I maybe almost do that to a fault. And I think part of it, if we go back to your idea of what you really want to do is be present. I have long had this sort of this fear or I, I don't know if I, I can't say it's a premonition. I imagine it's just a common anxiety. What if I'm not there for my kids? What if I die young? Whether that's a car accident, a snowboarding accident, a 
you know, cancer, whatever. And so I have felt like from them being very young, I want to teach them enough that if I go away, they might still have enough to carry with them from me. Have you, I don't, I don't want to put those fears in you. I don't want oh, you to get the they're thing. there. Okay. They're so there. it's not just me. Yeah. No. I've, I've, yeah, those, I've had those, those thoughts and unfortunately more than you'd like, but I, especially going through what we did with the pandemic, right? And I, I know we're tired of talking about it, uh, but it's, I think it's, it's changed the way you think about stuff or influenced the way we think about it. And, um, even before that, you know, if you experience loss and, um, unfortunately, I've had a fair amount of loss of, of peers, though that's in your head, you know, and you want to prepare your kids best you can. And, um, when you talk about loss of peers, what are, what are you saying? Uh, yeah, I've had a lot of friends die and family too young. And um, it's, you know, that going back to that kind of collective experience, you something that impactful doesn't, doesn't really go away. It's always there and influences the way you think. And um, I hate to be morbid, but I feel like it to me it feels unfortunately like almost like a premonition and i i think that's some kind of a like especially if you're having something similar like some kind of instinct right i mean it, or i wouldn't be surprised if it's you know in our kind of cheesy thing to say but in our dna to some point we're preparing we want our kids to be prepared for anything even if that means the loss of us yeah so. Yeah, I mean, people have have lost their parents. Of course, there's plenty of those people with stories. Um, I mean, both of my parents lost parents young. Right. Maybe that factors in somewhere. I mean, I, you know, I, I've seen, of course, that happen. But in the end, for me, the teaching and preparing them as best I can, and you know, I'm going to find out the next ten or <laughs> fifteen or twenty years was it too much, or is it something that they can say, you know, hey, thanks. Um, that, that really set me up. I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, we've talked about a little bit the parenting thing of, you know, do you go by the modeling of parenting that was provided for you? You said your mom was kind of that for you. For me, that other side you mentioned is more where I'm coming from is what do I not want to do? Yeah. And I wonder if you, well, do you have a relationship with your dad now? Uh, my father passed away in 2014. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So that was nine years ago. Um, did you have one? I hadn't spoken to my dad for five or six years before he passed. And there was some, uh, some mental health um, things going on. It wasn't just a bad relationship. Um, so, I mean, that's definitely, you, like, that has to influence the way I think and parent, you know. Um so <laughs> how how so? I mean, is it, are we getting back to that idea of, of loss too soon? I think so. Um, I don't think my I don't think he lost too soon. He missed out on he missed out on meeting his grandkids. Um, I think that that has to influence the way I think about that kind of you know darker, morbid side of not being there for whatever reason. When you do, you were an adult when you lost mm -hmm. him. 
Uh, you said mental health. If I can ask, was you mean on, on the part of his health? Yes. So I don't feel like I have an adult relationship with my father who still is alive um, and haven't had for nearly 30 years. Now, I suspect it would hurt him to hear me say that. Mm-hmm. But I think an objective look at it, a reasonably objective look at it, has to... <laughs> you'd have to acknowledge the truth of that. I'm curious your take and how that also might affect you as a parent, um, besides just as, as a human and as a man and as, as a husband, but as a parent, you know, that is another governing idea for me is I want relationships with my sons when they are adults. I want to be there for them and I want them to have me for whatever good I bring their lives um, as mentors, as support, as, as whatever, um, that I don't have right now in my life and haven't had for decades and, and do not anticipate ever having. I would imagine that factors into how, how you're thinking ahead as a, as a dad to them. I, I, yeah, I'm sure it does. I, I, I think so much of what I do is just subconscious. Like I don't, I don't, I'm not a great planner, long-term planner. I don't, um, I try, um, but it's, it's, I don't, I don't know if I, if I analyze things that way or, or can look or outlooks to the future M- more, mine is more of a, just a, God, I hate to say this is a gut feet gut feeling. Um, do you live in the present? Is that, do I you think feel so. Like, I mean, I think, I, you say hate to say. I think oh, well, that's a great way to go. And I, I know what I want. I don't know how I'm going to get there. I guess is is as far as a long term future and relationships with my kids. I think I spend too much time in my head. I think I could use more of the hands on skills. I think where we get physical and get into some of that manual labor of like the trail building and things like that, I think can be a really healthy thing. Whereas most of my work, and 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 I say work in the way that I look at it is not job. It's it's life work. It's creative work. It's just part of my life, but it all tends to be so inward, and creative and expressive as a writer, as an artist, as you know, a conversationalist for a podcast. Um, I spend too much time thinking. <laughs> oh. I, we should figure out some way to share it. I don't know. I mean, I yeah. <laughs> It's I I the whole long term goal thing has just never clicked with me. I mean, I barely make a weekly plan. <laughs> sometimes I can't stick to it, even <laughs> if I do. Yeah, I can't stick to a, a one you know a day long plan. Half of my to do list on any given day gets kicked to another day or another week. So let's wrap with this. I want to ask you, what do you love about parenting and being a dad and getting out there with them and sharing the outdoors and art and all those things that you do with your kids? Um, well, sharing is what I, is what I love the most. I think, um, I, and maybe it's that kind of training as with anthropology is, is kind of observing and, um, just the little surprises and, and stuff. Well, one of the, um, it's not wasn't really parenting advice, but things that have stuck with me. Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson um, 
I was listening to a, a talk of his b- before I had kids. Um, I'm not even sure if, if we were expecting yet. Um, I was, because when I was listening to it, I was thinking about, like, a lot about it, um, interpreting it from when I was a child, but I've definitely taken it. Um, and it was, you know, as, as parents, um, we were kind of conditioned, I, I feel like, um, and, and he, he does too in this talk, you know, we, there's conditioned to say no a lot and, and look out and kind of play referee. Um, but that gets in a way, especially with younger kids, um, with their experiments, Right. right. There, you know, he's, he's talking about it in the, um, context of science. Um, but like, you know, pulling out all the pots and pans, which is something I remember doing at my grandparents' house, you know, and, and, and not letting kids do that because we're making a mess. Like you're interrupting an experiment in acoustics. Like that's mm. what the kids are doing. Um, so I've like, my job as a parent is to not, what I, I try to do as a parent is to not get in the way of experiments. And that's really hard. Um, to do like I'm constantly checking myself, and especially again, sorry to say it, but the pandemic. Like I was recently looking at um videos that I took of my daughter before the pandemic of her learning to walk, and and she's falling, and I'm not going to pick her up, and you know, I, the, just these things that I I feel like I've turned into this hoverer. Like I think mm. just. And I, I, I blame it. Some of it's probably my natural tendencies, but I blame it on, you know, going through what we what we did with COVID. And it's like I, it's kind of, I've, I've got to figure out how to get back to letting them fall and not not worrying about it. Which, man, it was a it was a wake up call seeing those videos and how relaxed I was, and now I feel so tense. Um. Fair enough. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I imagine there's a lot there that we could explore um, individually, you know, in our own time. Working it out, for me anyway, in a journal would make sense, um, trying to process, because I don't really think that I've looked through all the ways we've been affected by um, by so much of that experience. But we certainly have been. Yeah. Um, and and I, I agree with you that I probably get involved too much and at other times find it much easier to be hands off. Um, I mean, there have been times I've tried to referee with my sons. They're 22 months apart. And then there have been times, you know, one of them will look to me to break up a, a physical fight and I've just had it and I'm like, go at it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. you need, you need to figure it out for yourself yeah. and, and they'll swing on each other and resolve it. And one of the best experiences that they ever had. And I think the three of us together ever had was one of those moments um, where what, you know, they got to realize I can take a punch. I can give a punch and have confidence. We're all okay. We worked it out. Do that part first, then come in, dry up the tears, the, all the emotions and tell me, what was this about? Yeah. And of course that's the part we don't even remember because it was inconsequential, but they really took some positives away from my just not refereeing and stepping back and saying, go at it. Well, and it's good to debrief those things too. I mean, that's where, that's where the growth is, is in the debrief, not just... The, <laughs> the pounding, the pounding out of the problems. <laughs> yeah, talk yeah. About afterwards, I let them work that out, and we went in the living room, and um, yeah, it was that that debrief. They were so thrilled and excited. 
Yeah. You know, to, to recount and, and then talk about what it was, but that no longer really mattered. And, um, yeah, we could talk about fatherhood for a long time, but that would be a many years long thing. Um, and maybe you and I can, but it's not yeah. going to fit into this show. We have these areas in common, Brinkley, art, fatherhood, love of outdoors. I appreciate your coming on here. I, I was looking forward to this conversation. Thanks so much for, for coming in and, and having it with me. Thanks. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for making it easy on me. <laughs> Some of these things. When I spend, I spend so much time alone in my own head. <laughs> I, I hear you. I hear you. Thank you, Brinkley. Yeah. All right. If you made it all this way and you still don't know, that was artist Brinkley Messick. If our conversation here today sparked curiosity for you, you can learn more in this episode's show notes at wearechapey.org. If you have comments or know someone in Chapey County, Colorado, who I should consider talking with on the podcast, you can email us at info at wearechapey.org. We invite you to rate and review the We Are Chapey Looking Upstream podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you use with that functionality. We also invite you and encourage you to tell others about the Looking Upstream podcast. You can help us to keep growing community and connection through conversation. Once again, I'm Adam Williams, host, producer, and photographer. John Prey is engineer and producer. Thank you to KHEN 106.9 FM Community Radio, where we recorded today's conversation in Salida, Colorado. To Heather Gorby for graphic and web design. To Andrea Carlstrom, Director of Chafee County Public Health and Environment. And to Lisa Martin, Community Advocacy Coordinator for the We Are Chafee Storytelling Initiative. The We Are Chafee Looking Upstream podcast is a collaboration with the Chafee County Department of Public Health and the Chafee Housing Authority. And it's supported by the Colorado Public Health and Environment Office of Health Disparities. You can learn more about the Looking Upstream podcast and related storytelling initiatives at wearechafee.org and on Instagram and Facebook at wearechafee. Lastly, thank you for listening and remember, as we say here at We Are Chafee, be human, share stories, 